Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. How did we become Central Ohio's most trusted team of orthopedic experts? We focus on what matters most, our patients. At Orthopedic One, we know we're only at our best when we're helping you get better. And every day, your commitment to overcoming pain and injury inspires and moves us. That's why we bring our best every day to earn your trust. Find a physician near you at orthopedicone.com. Recorded live. Coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. The following program is intended for immature audiences only. Online. 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 You're going online with Bill Alexander. Online with Bill Alexander is a live caller interactive talk show. Whatever's on your mind, heavy, light, or otherwise, give Bill a ring at 724-444-7444. ID 1832. Now, sit back and strap in for another edition of Online with Bill Alexander. in my soul like a gambler on a street looks like everything's going my way I'm just a man but the gods have been smiling at me there's the smell of sweet perfume now there's only one thing left to say what the hell were you thinking? What the hell were you talking about? Was it something you're drinking? Did you care when the bottom fell out? What the hell were you thinking? And tell me what the hell to do now. Good Friday evening, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander, the Netio Show here at TalkShoe.com. Phone numbers for the Hoot Nanny, 724-444-7444-1832 is the TalkCast ID number. 
running like a chicken with my head cut off, was given tickets this afternoon to see The Riders in the Sky. And Ranger Doug at the State Theater in Uniontown made it back in time, got everything hooked up, and we're ready to do a show tonight. And hopefully we don't have any technical difficulties like we did the last two times that we tried to do this show, because tonight (laughs) he's agreed to come back one more time to try this one more time. And that's Joe Simon, formerly of WMBS Radio. (laughs) So we'll keep our fingers crossed and we'll see what happens. God, I hope not. Anyhow, yours truly with you. Before we get started, I have to I have to uh, explain what happened. The last time I talked to Joe, we had technical difficulties. You could hear him, but you couldn't hear me. Then we tried to do it again, and you couldn't hear anything. So we're going to try it one more time. I mean, the Internet and technology is a wonderful thing. So we're going to do third time the charm. But let me get this started the way we started it last time. And we'll make sure that everything's working this time. Sounds good to you. Sounds good to me. Here we go. Here. There we go. Out. What the hell were you thinking? Anyhow, it's a Friday night. I hope everything's going fine for you. Yours truly, Bill Alexander, with you. Phone number again is 724-444-7444-1832 is the TalkCast ID number. And, uh, again, uh, the first show back in a few weeks. Last week we had the opportunity to talk with uh, – actually, it was a recording last week of Andrew Portwander, who wrote the book The Devil Himself, which is an excellent book dealing with the Nut Duke trial that happened in Uniontown in the 1830s or the 1880s, I'm sorry. And uh, we were talking about that, and that was also a TV program that we did. Before that, we had Glenn Heller on, formerly of WPQR. Before that, we had Darren Christopher, um, speechwriter for the Department of Energy, talking about the 2016 elections, which we're going to have a lot to talk about here in the next few weeks. But right now, we have Joe Simon, formerly of WMBS Radio. WMBS time is six minutes after the hour of five o'clock. The uh... All Nostalgia Anniversary Special will resume in just a moment. Now, the WMBS weather forecast for Uniontown and all of southwestern Pennsylvania. Overnight, skies clear and cool. We're looking for low in the lower 50s. If you're making plans for the day today, which we do hope will include a visit to WMBS Radio on this occasion of our 50th anniversary, you can look forward to mostly sunny and pleasant skies, high to be in the mid-70s. On Wednesday night, our skies will be partly cloudy. Look for low in the mid-50s. Then on Thursday, it'll be mostly cloudy, a 30% chance of showers, and a high temperature in the upper 70s. 50 degrees at the WeatherWatch 59 weather station. Our winds are calm, and the barometer is at 29.95 inches of mercury. That's local, district, and statewide news from the WMBS Newsroom. Now let's go back to Charlie Underwood with more of the all and that was Joe Simon, and Joe Simon's on the line with me right now. Joe, how are you doing tonight? Hard times to charm, Bill. <laughs> I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Um, I, as I listened to that weather forecast, this was in July of 1987. It must have been a very cold July back then. Actually, and it was only 70 degrees. What I remember of that night, I had such an education 
in the world of the history of broadcast radio that night. Uh-huh. As I was with Charlie right through the evening. Yeah, I guess you would say it wasn't really hot, but of course we were getting into the evening hours and we had people who were starting to come by and wanting to wish Charlie well and to have their opportunity to say a few words about what WMBS radio meant to them during the course of the last 50 years. Now, what I think is interesting is at the time this was done, um, WMBS wasn't on 24-7. They were only done for about, um, oh, what, about uh, from 6 a.m. until midnight or or 1 o'clock, somewhere around there? Actually, we were on the air usually until 1.30 in the morning. We oh, had the okay. night. Yeah, we had the Night Sounds talk show. They got going at 11.30 at night and would go to 1.30 in the morning. And uh, I was the host of that program for a while. Had the chance to talk to some individuals there in the local area. We discussed the issues of the day. It was good to be able to get the opinions of others, but then there were some others that, well, you know how opinions can be. Well, there was a guy there because I actually – filled in for Ray when Ray had the program and um, I got, I actually hosted the program and I just told this story the other day to, to uh, my son of all, of all people by accident because Ray was going on vacation for a week and Jim Morgan came to me and said, we need you to do overnights. Would you be willing to do it? I said, sure. He said, well, here's the music that Ray plays. Do that. I said, but doesn't Ray do a talk show? He goes, yeah, but you don't want to do that. I said, please let me try. I've always wanted to do it. So I trained with Ray for one week. The following week, they threw me in, having no idea who I was talking to. And the first guy that called in, his nickname was Fireball. And trust me, he was all over the place. And he, his goal, I think, was was to get me to blow the station off the air. I really think that's what he wanted me to do. <laughs> but uh, but I, I ended up hosting the show for probably about a year, and then they uh, canned it, and then I came back again, and then I did my own version of the program uh, in 99-2000. Uh, we had some interesting individuals over the weeks and months that I had the chance to sit in on that. One that really sticks out in my memory is Bob King of Pittsburgh Radio Fame. Yes, yes. Bob, Bob would come on, and we would do some certain historical reviews. We'd talk about things that had happened in Western Pennsylvania in the past. Bob would often have different uh, tape recordings that he would feature as part of the program. And I always remember Bob so very well because he was so energetic. He was so full of life. And I think our listeners really loved him. Bob did a program, actually did holiday programs with me when I was over at WASP. And oh, we were doing nostalgia programs on Christmas and on Thanksgiving and on New Year's. And his wife, Rose, was a sweetheart. I mean, she was wonderful. But I, I loved working with Bob. He was, he, was, he was very knowledgeable in about what he did and what he talked about. And he could give you the history of radio in southwestern Pennsylvania like no one else could. Absolutely. Bill, did you ever have the opportunity to do a show with George Nara? No, I haven't, but other people um, have asked me about that, and unfortunately, I never had the opportunity to talk with him. George, we called him the movie man, mm-hmm. and George would come in, and he'd actually sit in the uh, studio opposite of the control room, and we would take the phone calls, and he was a virtual library of film knowledge. I mean, we talked about things ranging all the way back to 
Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, and mm-hmm. they explain how they used the bowl of jello as a means of creating the parting of the Red Sea. And also enjoyed spending time with him. George had such a wide amount of knowledge when it came to the movies. Yeah, unfortunately, I never had the opportunity. Now, I, I, I jumped into the interview, didn't even introduce who you were, what you did, where you've been, and how people should know who you are. And I apologize for that, Joe. <laughs> but it seems like we've done this once already. So let's do this again and start at the beginning. Joe, you were at WMBS from when to when? I was at WMBS from 1987 to, well, actually, no, it was 1984 to 1996. Okay. I had the opportunity to come in. I was, I guess you would call my position a floater position. Not only would I do things on the air, I would get involved working up in the office. I would go out and do newscasts. Occasionally, I would get asked to go out and do a live broadcast. And you mentioned Ray, Ray Heiss. Ray and I did some sports work mm-hmm. together for a number of years. And I will always remember so well, we were down at Ringgold High School, and we were perched up above the gymnasium floor, and it was just kind of a little platform area there. And we're doing our broadcast, and Ray was kind of getting into it, and I was getting into it too. All of a sudden, our commercial sheets just lifted right up off the table, and floated over the edge and down to the gym floor. <laughs> and we were kind of winging it from that point on, making it up as we were going along. Uh, when we talk about it, actually, I got brought into WMBS your last year there, basically, because I was brought in in, um, oh, it would have been 95. Yeah, late actually, it was 94. 94 was my last year. Or, or, okay, then it was late 93 then that I was brought in mm-hmm. because I was there because you actually trained me, and I did a Christmas special with you guys um, because I was replacing, I forget who the guy's name was, um, that did it because you had this you had this most elaborate Christmas program that you did for the station, and it was talking about basically holiday traditions around the world. And I had to do the holiday tradition for Mexico. And what was really unique about it, because no one knows my my nationality on my mother's side, which is Mexican. So it all worked out very well and very convenient. And that was, um, and I was brought in um, probably late August, early September of that year. That so, was back in the day when we went on the road. Uh, I would travel around the local area there if it meant getting to record some people to get them to be a part of a program. I remember bringing in the Trinity Church Bell Choir that came into the studio and actually uh-huh. performed a couple of numbers right there in the studio, and we recorded them to get them in as part of the program. But we had greetings. We got the whole staff involved, uh, Lois Ann Cosgrove, Mary Ellen Sweeney, Oh, there's things I haven't heard in a while. Everybody had an opportunity to participate in that, and it certainly was a lot of fun to put that together and then be able to listen to it on the air on Christmas Eve. Speaking of names, I don't know if you were there when um, when she was there, but I ran into, of all people tonight, Sandy Tracy. Sandy Tracy. I know Sandy from my days working at WPQR. Uh-huh. She was, she was one of the volunteers and one of the ushers tonight at the concert I went to at the State Theater. 
Oh, okay. And I haven't seen Sandy in a handful of years, and she um, she remembers me as a I wasn't a young father, but I was much younger than I am now, and my 15 year old, who's soon to be 16 in a month. Um, as when I used to bring him in the radio station in one arm and would answer phones with the other arm. And now he is two inches taller than I am. And she goes, oh DJ, that's you. <laughs> and my son goes, he called me DJ. I said, remember, we were in a radio station. Your initials are DJ. I said, it worked yeah. out real well. <laughs> so it's, it was really nice to see her tonight and everything else. But uh, inter, inter, interesting times. Radio has changed so much since those days back back then. And one of the things that I remember at MBS, which would have been at the time, is and they and HBO I guess is doing a series on it right now. I think it's HBO or Fox, is the whole O. J. Simpson um reenactment and the re- rehashing of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the first baseball games I engineered for WMBS of the Pittsburgh Pirates, CBS News broke in the middle of the pirate game or I'm sorry, it was NBC for the KDK affiliate, and they broke in the middle of it while we're trying to do a game, and they're talking about a slow Bronco chase going down an L.A. freeway. Mm. And it's like I'm yelling at the radio station going, I don't care what this man's doing. I'm supposed to be here engineering a pirate game. I don't (laughs) care. Because I was waiting for Simon Ryder to call me and tell me that I was doing something wrong, but unfortunately, or fortunately, he didn't that night. But uh, that goes back to that time period, too. So, Joe, you worked you worked at WMBS. Where did you work before that in radio? Well, actually, my first part-time job was with WLSW up on the hill. I worked a Sunday afternoon from 2 to 6 shift. Okay. And when there was some restructuring to how people were going to be on the air up there, I went down the hill into Connellsville, and I talked to Phil Chrysler, Wayne McCree, Bill Ellis, Ralph Prinking, and the crew at WCBI. Ah. And I caught on there doing the afternoon into the evening drive. My time slot was like from 4 until 11. I'd go in and work on some news, do some commercial work, and then go on the air and had the opportunity to engineer my first pirate baseball game when I was at WCBI. Mm-hmm. We, um, were, we were so excited the night, I believe it was in 1979, that the Pirates were, they were on their way. They were going to win the world championship. And Ray came in after me that night. And I told him that Lanny Terry and Jim Brooker, they had planned, they were just going to leave the microphone open so that you could hear the sound of the crowd roaring once the right. final uh, out had been announced. And I said, Ray, let's do this. Let's add our own little flair to this. And I grabbed a copy of Sister Sledge singing We Are Family. Mm-hmm. And I said, just bring that up underneath that, because that was the Pirates theme song that year. So we put on the air, the sound of the crowd roaring down at Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh. And as I'm driving home, I could hear Ray bringing up Sister Sledge singing We Are Family in the background. We just let that play for several minutes. <laughs> Something made for a nice addition to the broadcast. So. I'm sure it did. You mentioned the name in there, and I ended up working with him when I worked at WLSW, and that was Ralph Frankie, who passed away a few years ago. Oh, I'm and, sorry to hear Yeah, Ralph, Ralph was a character because he became the sales manager at WLSW eventually. Now, mm-hmm. when you were at LSW, that was Stan, it was basically a brand new station that Stan Wall put on the air. Right. And uh, 
I don't know back then, but when I worked for him in the late 80s, he was having trouble making payroll then. When you were there, was he having trouble making payroll? Well, if you wanted to count paying his employees in food stamps. Uh, yeah, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rob, now uh, uh, Stan passed away, I think, about three years ago now. Oh, it felt finally caught up with him. And um, and uh, he unfortunately, he passed away. The station's still there. The station's still broadcasting. And there's a rumor right now that it is up for sale. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. Mm-hmm. Actually, a friend of mine, it's kind of interesting for me, a friend of mine, also by the name of Joe, Joe Gehring. I, I, I did an interview with – actually, I played back the interview with Joe that I did um, when I was at MBS in the early 2000s. Oh, and okay. I played that, about, played that back about four weeks ago so people could hear that. And Joe recently passed away. I hate – it sounds like I'm doing an obituary here. Passed away this past September. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. I, wonderful, wonderful man. Joe and I were close friends, and the really shocking part was my wife and his wife, Kathy, were uh-huh. close friends. Matter of fact, they had gotten together one night shortly after uh, my wife, Susan, and I had started dating, and I found out th- about this later. They were sitting, and they're watching TV, and they started talking about their boyfriend named Joe. And nobody was mentioning last names or anything. So needless to say, Joe Gehring and I were finding ourselves getting a bit of trouble, even though we had no reason to be. Now, you're talking about Junior, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Joe Senior just passed away. Oh, okay. Okay. Senior just passed away. Joe Br- Joe Gehring, or I knew him as Joe Bryan, he was the one that hired me at LSW. Oh, all right. He was the program director at the time. Oh. Uh, when I was When I was there in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, but his dad just passed away this past September. Oh, um, Joe Gary Senior, which um, he he was um, he was a, the voice of Southwestern Pennsylvania for so many years because he worked in so many different places. Certainly. And then Joe Gehring Junior or Joe Bryan is a uh, as I refer to him as just to be able to keep the name straight. Uh, <laughs> he. Uh, he hired me, and I got hired at LSW by accident because he didn't know where I was from because my phone exchange looked similar to a Connellsville one, Connellsville 626 and, um, and uh, 628. My exchange was 625. He just assumed it was Connellsville. Well, they know that I was coming from Mars, Pennsylvania to drive in to take the job. All right. So, but yeah, Joe is Joe is a character. He really was, and he was there for about a year before he left. And then I think he went into real estate, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. But but going back and forth, radio. Most of the guys that started in radio or worked in radio are no longer there, like you, which you're now teaching. That's right. I've been teaching now for 20 years, getting ready to finish my 20th year actually at Casper College in Casper, Wyoming. And what intrigued you to go into education? Well, to be honest, I was looking at a bit of a career change. It was going to have to happen when one day my wife came home from the doctor's office and she looked at me and she said, well, guess who's going to be a dad again? <laughs> and I, and fortunately, I didn't get a smart mouth and say, well, it better be me. Right. But what I decided at that point was I needed something a little bit different. So on the morning when my third child was born, my second son, 
I went out to Penn State University up here at Fayette campus. And mm-hmm. I saw Dr. Dr. Ellen Long, and she said to me, she said, Joe, we've decided to reinstate you in terms of your college education where you were when you left 11 years ago. And that was a good start for me. I got back in and earned my Associates of Letters, Arts, and Sciences from Penn State Fayette. And then I went down to California University of Pennsylvania, where I got my bachelor's and master's degree in business. Now, while I was going through my classwork down at California, I had a case where one of my classes, I was required to make a presentation. So I got up in front of the room and went through and did my presentation. It was an economics class. And I went back to sit down, and the young lady who was in the chair in front of me, she turned around, and she looked at me, and she said, you know, you look really comfortable up there. And it was like one of those cartoon characters. This bright light went on above my head. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was working in Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water up on the hill. Yes. And I decided one day I was going to call the local branch there at Penn State, and I talked to the dean, Richard Capelli. And he said, Joe, I'll tell you what we can do. He said, how would you like to teach what I taught you? I said, principles of management? He said, exactly. He said, I have an opening for an adjunct. And I said, that sounds pretty good. I will go ahead and do that. And then one semester later, I found out about the job out here in Wyoming, applied for it, and uh, I'm getting a longevity award coming up in about a month and a half. Oh, that's cool. Now, what's interesting about that, and, I, and I, I forgot you worked at Falling Water because I worked at Falling Water at the same time because radio wasn't paying enough, and that was before I decided to go back to school. But you worked with my, my wife, Uriel, who was a tour guide up there also. Yes. Who now is the executive director of the Fayette County Chamber of Commerce. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so, yeah, well, it's, a, it's a small world. I remember a young man who, who was very instrumental in getting me to Falling Water. A fellow by the name of Bill Alexander yeah, called I, me one I, day <laughs> and wanted to know what I was up to. Mm-hmm. And I said, not a whole heck of a lot. And But that I, I, the funny thing is, is that, that that period of time, even in my life, I only remember bits and pieces of it. And you, you said that, and I'm going, wait a minute. I worked with Joe up there. No, I remember. Um, yeah, so we did work up there for – how long were you up there? I was there for two years. Okay, and I was there, I was there just a little bit longer, and then I was going back for my um, – right when you left, I was going back for my master's degree in education. Okay. So, again, it, it is. It's just interesting. I forgot all about that. I'm glad you brought that up. That was something that uh, slipped my mind, of all things. So you're teaching economics um, at Casper University in Wyoming. You've been there for 20 years. Where do you go next? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure what other things may be headed my way in the future. I've been exploring some opportunities as far as doing some voiceover work for some different organizations, there are a lot uh-huh. of places online that you can go, yeah. and they have places where you can submit auditions. I've been working on some things like that. Uh, during my last four or five years out here at Casper College, I've gotten involved in theater. We had a director, a fellow by the name of Doug Garland. He's living in New Mexico now. 
But he called my office one day and he says, Joe, we're going to put on Titanic the musical. This was back in 2011. So he wanted to do this as a build up to the 100th anniversary, which was coming up in 2012. Uh-huh. And he says to me, he says, Joe, I'm tired of trying to teach younger men to act like older men. Would you be interested in auditioning? Uh-huh. And I opened my mouth and the word yes fell out. So I went over and I read for the part of John Jacob Astor IV. And they put us through some dance steps. A friend of mine by the name of Paul and I, uh, we figured we must have passed the audition because we didn't fall off the stage and break an arm. Well, that's good. And a couple of days later, the cast list came out, and there we were. He was cast as Benjamin Guggenheim, and I was in there as John Jacob Astor IV. And it was quite a different experience for me. I thought, how in the world am I going to relate to these young people that have decided that they want to make theater oh, such yeah. an important part of their lives? Mm-hmm. But I had something happen in my family. It was 10 days after I realized I was going to be a part of the cast for this program that my brother was killed in a car crash down in South Carolina. Well, what these young people did when I got back to rehearsals, they rallied around me. Mm -hmm. They really, they were constantly checking on me. How you doing? How's things? Anything you want to talk about? And I remember so well one night, one of these young people looked at me. And he said, well, how are you enjoying being a part of this company? And I said, well, I'm filling a spot. And he looked at me and he said, you are not just filling a spot. You're an important part of this company. And I don't ever want to hear you say that again. And I thought, wow, this really surprised me because I didn't think that there would be an area where students would be so open in their feelings. Of course, I should have figured if anywhere it was going to be in the theater department. Right. But they would be so open in their feelings and be willing to share and to make sure that everybody was doing well. I had a 19-year-old wife in this production. Okay. And one of the scariest moments for me uh, was I was on stage one night and our director, he's out there sitting in the dark as most directors do. And he yells at me, he says, Joe, you're married, act like it. And I hollered out of the dark, I said, well, I'm not touching her, I'm not touching her, am I doing it right? <laughs> and she, this young lady, Emily is her name, she reached over, took my left hand, pulled it around her waist. And I tell my students to this day that I hyperventilated for the next five minutes. <laughs> I was so nervous because obviously when it comes to students and instructors interacting, oh, yeah. touching, touching is something you don't do. Yes. But she was very comfortable with it. And uh, I later was in a production that she directed. She right now is going to school at uh, Columbia in uh, Columbia School of Theater in Chicago. Oh, okay. And she wanted to put on, she did an adaptation of uh, George Hornwell's 1984. And she asked me if I would be willing to be the head of the thought police. And I thought, oh boy, here I get a chance to do a role that involves me being a bad guy. <laughs> of course, you don't find out until late in the play that I'm actually a bad guy and I'm 
standing behind the stage, and I bailed out in a really deep voice, here comes an arrow to chop off your head. And then the thought police come around and grab them and haul them away, and I'm wearing this long black overcoat, and I've got this black hat on my head, and I thought, oh, if I could only wear this to class one day. <laughs> Just so students could say, hey, well, look, he does have a different tide. So but, do you still do theater now, or is this something that you did in the past? Well, actually, I haven't done too much in the last year or so. But I did have a couple of other opportunities. We did a comedy, the local Stage Street Community Theater. We did a comedy called Family Ties and Little White Lies. And I was playing an FBI agent. Okay. And I was not prepared right away anyway for the physical rigors of getting clothes dropped on you so that you're hidden and then crawling across the floor so you can sneak out a door. Later, we did a production of the ancient, I think it's Greek play, Lysistrata. And I was uh, one of the people that was involved in that. We later put together a uh, production of the musical Gypsy. Oh, okay. The story of Gypsy Rosalie. And I played two roles in that. I played Grandpa, and I later played the guy who was in charge of the burlesque house. <laughs> yeah, well, they're actually, the summer theater here is going to be doing Gypsy. Oh. And my son is planning on auditioning, and I thought about, you know what, I probably should do it too, but he'd kill me if I ended up being in the same way he was. Because, <laughs> <laughs> see, I've looked at doing it, because I did it when I was in high school, and I did some in college, and I haven't done anything in 30 years. And southwestern Pennsylvania all of a sudden became Hollywood East, because we've had so many movies and TV programs started to record back here. Um, and there was a there was an open casting call a couple of weeks ago for one. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it. And I'm going, maybe, maybe I could. That's something else I could add to the resume that I have not done. And uh, it, I'm still kicking around. Still haven't made the the jump to do it yet. But I'm thinking about it. Well, it was 35 years from the time that I played Doc in West Side Story at Laurel Highlands High School mm -hmm. until I walked on the stage as John Jacob Astor the Fourth here in Casper, Wyoming. And to tell you the absolute truth, I was scared to death. <laughs> Which time? Both? Both times. <laughs> but um, I just, I love it whenever I get the opportunity. And I, I'm, I'm sure it would, I'm sure it would be enjoyable to do. I really, I really do. Um, so are you looking, like you said, when are you looking at retirement? Is that coming up soon or is that a few years down the road or is it whatever you want to do it? Well, actually, retirement is a little under nine years away. Oh, wow. So it's getting close. Yeah, and, we're still far enough away that you don't have to worry about it tomorrow. Well, I had to kind of draw in my breath a little bit. My dean came to talk to her two most seasoned employees. This was oh, a little more than a year ago, and she was uh -huh. talking to the woman who had the office next door about retirement and she said oh no no i'm not ready to retire yet so she came over and she said to me well have you thought about early retirement and i said i can't she said why i said i have to be 67 and a half to be fully vested in social security right and uh, she said but you've been here so long and i thought yeah i'm going to be here a little bit longer so. <laughs> Cause, yeah because i have 
another to be vested. I'll have another 17 years. So, um, okay. But I, well, I have to do it because I'm going to have three kids in college (laughs) and my youngest one right now is eight. So I'm going to be working until she gets through college at least. So there you go. But, But the bad thing is, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't work. And the way my schedule is, I'm I being in the, in the the public education, I have two and a half months off. I can't ask for anything more. Mm-hmm. So, and I enjoy what I teach. I enjoy being around the students. And when I get frustrated or tired with them, I get a new set that comes through the door again. So, I mean, that it, it, it's a perfect, it's a it's a perfect occupation to be able to do that. And when I started teaching, one of my students came to me and said, why would you go into education? And my response was basically, it's the same thing as I did on the radio. And they looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, the only difference is instead of doing a three or four hour air shift, now I do four shows or six shows a day, 45 minutes long, and the audience keeps changing. I said, the only difference is I see them. And you know what? That's how I viewed it when I went to Falling Water. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. It was an opportunity to meet with so many different groups of people that would come from all over the country because mm-hmm. they wanted to see that house up there north of Ohio Pile. That's right. And, um, and, I, and I still look at with the students I have now and the ones that have left me, and I, I get responses back occasionally about what they're doing and if they're working in the field that I taught them and everything else. It's a nice bit of satisfaction to realize that they did get something out of it, and it's nice that they remember where they started from. So, it, again, mm-hmm. it, it, when I left radio, and I, I told my wife this, I said, when I leave, it's when I can no longer make a difference. And I couldn't because everything was changing. The political landscape was changing. The country was changing. Everything was happening. And I was like, my style of radio, my style of talk was not what it was at. It okay. became more controversial. It became more political. It was the, the lack of, of just sitting and talking and communicating and sharing stories and doing stuff like that because it's all confrontational. And I said, when that happened, it was time for me to leave. And I did. But luckily, I was also teaching at the same time. So I had something to fall back into and I was able to have something that I was able to feel comfortable with. Now, what's wonderful is in 2006, the internet came along and all this started, and I've been able to do this to fulfill that need of still carrying on that conversation with people that I either don't know or I haven't seen in a long time. It was interesting for me when I came out here and started my work as a teacher. I kept telling myself, well, gee, if this teaching thing doesn't work out, I can always fall back on radio. That's right. And try doing that again, but... We got to my 10-year mark, and my wife says to me, she says, well, we've been, we've been running a house for 10 years. And she says, if you sign your contract for another year, we're going to buy a house. So I signed my contract for another year, and we bought a house that we're living into this day. And, Bill, I got to tell you, one night we were sitting out in the living room, and out of the clear blue sky, she looked at me, and she said, I didn't think you'd do it. Now, if you want to talk about words that could get a man scared to death when you're sitting there and you're talking to your wife and she says, I didn't think you'd do it, and you're wondering, what in the world did you do? Uh Uh-huh. And she said, I didn't think you'd sign your contract. I said, 
and you're just now saying this to me? <laughs> I gave a big sigh of relief when I realized that, that was what I had done that she was questioning about. But, uh-huh. of course, we've had our 20 years here. We've seen our family grow up. I have a daughter right now who's living in Virginia Beach. She moved down there last May, and she has been living with my wife's brother and his wife and my wife's father, 86 years young. He is Mm -hmm. still living there in Virginia Beach. And my oldest daughter, she is in Helena, Montana. She got married a number of years ago, and I have three beautiful granddaughters. And apparently they've inherited what we call the gift of gab from their grandfather. (laughs) My oldest granddaughter, her name is Lucy. Uh Uh-huh. And Lucy will talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime about anything. We were in church one day, and it came time to uh, share the peace with everybody who was in the congregation. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Lucy takes off like a shot out of where we're sitting, and she starts walking around the church, shaking hands with everybody. And I'm thinking, what is she doing? And she walked up behind the priest. And she stood there and waited for him to turn around and shake her hand. (laughs) I think the day will come, Bill, when she'll probably be running for mayor of Helena. Oh, you're probably right. (laughs) (laughs) But Um, they all say that it's it's Grandpa's fault that the the girls all have this overwhelming desire to talk to people. So yeah, yeah, oh yeah, and it it is it is genetic. I I truly believe that. But uh, so. Have you looked at doing radio in Casper? I mean, is there any opportunities to do radio, or is that something that you've just basically said, that was a previous life and I'm not interested in doing it again? Well, actually, I did do a little bit of a Saturday morning show. I did a two-hour show on our local uh, country music station. And, well, actually, it was country music. Normally, it's middle of the road. matter of fact, it was, it's an awful lot like WMBS used to be. Okay, but uh, KTWO, 10.30 a.m. here in town, and I would do a country music show from 6 to 8 every morning, every Saturday morning, I should say. And then we would have various types of recorded programming when it was football season. Sometimes the UW football game would come on early, and I would sit there and engineer that. But uh, it's just a case, I guess, of trying to strike a balance between things. I... Really, in my heart of hearts, I wouldn't mind doing some sort of broadcasting work on the side. Right. Tell you the truth. Because it was just, to use a phrase from way back when, it was a rush. Oh, yeah. It really was to sit there and think that there are people sitting out there and they're listening to what you have to say. Mm-hmm. And as far as playing music, getting to know the different artists, my very first radio show when I was in college, I was on WCUCFM up there in Clarion. And my very first radio show was a Sunday afternoon big band show. I was a college kid at the time, and all I could think was, big band, yuck. (laughs) But I started learning the music. Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey. Benny Goodman in the orchestra. And I had the opportunity, and this is how things sometimes really go full circle. The Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, under the direction of Buddy Morrow, 
was to be an oil city. And I made some phone calls, and finally I got their manager to agree that if I made it to Oil City High School at 5.30 on the evening of the performance, I'd be able to do an interview with Buddy Morrow. Right. Well, needless to say, I got lost. And I'm running into Oil City High School, and I look out the back, and here's the uh, bus with the orchestra pulling away, going out for dinner. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do now? And I just decided I would stay, and I would kind of beg and plead with Mr. Morrow, explain that I'd gotten lost, and if he could spare me just a few minutes, that we could talk, and maybe he could do a promo for my show. And he was such a nice guy. I understand he just passed away a couple years ago, but he was such a nice guy. He took me out on the stage there at Oil City High School, and he said, okay, ask me what you'd like to ask me. And I did the interview, and then I was able to take it back and play some of it on my big band show. Well, what I'm saying with things coming full circle is in the month of February each year, Casper College has what they call the Kinsler Jazz Festival. Okay. And the featured group this year, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. Oh, wow. And I just had to go see them. Uh huh. Of course, there really was no one there from back in the day when I was trying to interview Mr. Morrow on the stage at Oil City High School. But the music and just the panache, I guess, is the word I want to use. Yeah. Everything was so classy with this group. It was like 50 years of classic, 60 years of classic. And I'm watching the people in the audience, even some of the young folks, they were really enjoying listening to what this orchestra was doing. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And it was just like old home week for me. Of course, when I was there at WCUC, I want to tell you a story about someone I worked with. Matter of fact, he, I guess, is still very much involved in Pittsburgh radio. A fellow by the name of Larry Richards. And I know Larry well, yes. Well, Larry was going to school at the same time. I was there at WCUC, and Larry was doing sports for us. One night, they are across the state, and they're doing a basketball broadcast, and Larry forgot that he was on the air and that we had no delay system set up for the college radio station. Okay. And Larry utters an expletive when the ball goes out of bounds, and I have a trainee back at the studio, and she just melted in the chair. It was just like, oh, oh. <laughs> Well, the very next day, the advisor for the radio station says to me, he says, okay, we're going to make sure Larry never, ever does this again. And he said, I'm going to call down there in a few minutes, and I want you to act like I'm an inspector for the FCC. And then you're going to tell Larry that there's an inspector for the FCC in town, and he wants to talk to Larry about his broadcast from last night. Well, Larry turned white as the sheet, got extremely nervous, and was trying to find everyone who would attest to his character that he never normally does that kind of thing. And wouldn't we all speak up for him when this FCC inspector got there? Well, a few minutes later, the advisor for the station comes around the corner, and we just, we laughed so hard. It was a wonder we didn't all fall off our chairs. <laughs> but it, it was a lesson. And it, it, taught, it taught Larry, of course, it was a lesson for us, too. I mean, in terms of realizing what power you have 
when you are sitting in that studio, oh yeah, transmitters broadcasting, mm-hmm. and there are people out there who are listening to you. You have a lot of power, and it has to be used wisely. Yeah, Larry is still doing warnings on KDK, and he's also the new. Actually, it's about about a year now. The new PA, PA announcer at Heinz Field for Steelers football games. Wonderful. So he, yeah, so he he's still doing it, and he hasn't gotten in trouble yet. At least uh, <laughs> none that anybody knows of. Let's just say that. You make a comment about the big band, and I think it's interesting because when I was at MBS, um, I was I I. There was a whole schedule shift that happened because I was doing Saturday afternoons and Chuck Durso was doing Saturday evenings. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, Chuck convinced <laughs> management that we needed to switch. And I'm going, I'm fine. I mean, I don't have to worry about I can do it. There's no big deal. And what ended up happening was I was working with Leon Sykes. And after Leon's show, the station did a big band program, and it was coming in on disc. It was it was a, a, a syndicated program, and all of a sudden, the disc stopped coming. The company that produced it went out of business. So Jim Morgan hmm. said, we have this following. Can you do a big band show? And I go, on, well, I know some of it, but I really can't do it. He goes, here, here's the records. Just go play them. I said, fine. So I did big band, big band bit. So I always had this passion for it after doing that program. So in 2003, I was with, I went back to MBS for a brief period of time. I was also their program director when I was teaching, and I was doing a nighttime talk show. I was doing um, I was my workday started at, at I got up in the morning at 5:30. I left the house at 6:30, and I was at work at seven o'clock. Do the full day. Leave the state, leave work, go to the station, put an hour and a half in of office time, and then would come home, and then turn back around at 9:30 and make it on the air 10 o'clock. Well, at the same mm-hmm. time, my son, who's now soon to be 16, was an infant. I screwed up the kid's sleep pattern because I was coming home at 1:30 in the morning, getting four hours of sleep, and doing this all over again. Well, I loved every minute of it, and I was having a blast doing it. We switched the format to oldies because the station really never had a true format. Well, I left the station. I went to WJPA in Washington. I came back two years later. They were looking for someone to fill in for the afternoon talk show host, and they knew I wasn't doing anything. Said, so can you fill in for a week? I said, sure. I said, it's the end of the school year. I can do it no problem at all. So the general manager and I, who was Ron Dawson at the time, said, what would you do to fix the station? I said, well, give me some time. So in November of that year, I came to Ron. I said, I want to do a program. I want to call it American Classics, or I want to do the Sounds of the Big Bands again, and I want to see if we get an audience. Well, Saturday nights was when the show was on. It was on for an hour, and then it extended to two hours, and we got a great response. In 2003 of January, the station switched formats to Nostalgia. And it was because we did the test run of the big band program, and it was like all of a sudden people go, wait a minute, why didn't we think of this before? And then I did a program called American Classic Standards for about a year and a half. But it was really interesting because the station, when it was in its heyday, that was the music that it played. And no one really connected to it. 
And at that time, I don't know if you remember Wally Gingers or not, but I got to meet his daughter who has revived her dad's orchestra and they're still playing to this day. I've been invited to concerts. We've done interviews with them and everything else. And it's really fun because that type of music, I don't think will ever go away because there's new audiences that keep finding it over and over again. That's for sure. My very and, earliest experience with any type of big band music, when I was young and still living at home, I was very much into holiday traditions. And I can remember so very well tuning in to KDKA at 1130 at night on December 31st. Uh-huh. So then I could listen to Guy Lombardo and the Royal <laughs> Canadians, Canadians yeah. from the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. And that was my very first experience uh, with any type of big band music. Of course, I later went on to do the college show. And, right. Uh, it just it has such a rich history to it. And so many of the artists of the 60s, the 70s, they really have to credit their careers with what these pioneers did back in the 40s. Oh, of course. And how they built up uh, this idea of having this large orchestra that would barnstorm across the country. Uh, one of my favorite TV programs during the 80s was Night Court and how Harry Anderson was yes. a big fan of Mel Torme and the Mel mm-hmm. Tones. And, uh, of course, I think about that uh, and it just, I think about how these things have related to me in terms of my personal life and that's how I have come to enjoy them so much over the years. So my question for you, because I grew up in Butler County. I grew up outside of Mars, Pennsylvania, and I end up in Uniontown in Fayette County because of California University, college Mm -hmm. radio station. That's why I went there. How did you get from Uniontown to Clarion? Well, I was a journalism major when I first went to college. Okay. And my goal was I dreamed one day that I would become the journalist who had finally solved the JFK assassination. Okay. That was my ultimate goal. But after a year and a half out of Fayette campus, they informed me, they said, if you wish to continue to major in journalism, you're going to have to make a switch. You can't stay here. Right. You're, you're going to have to go to University Park or you're going to have to go someplace else. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill, I went to University Park for a visit. And, of course, the place is monstrous. Oh, yeah. I firmly believed I could be missing for three days and no one would know I was gone. (laughs) You're probably right. (laughs) But a friend of my father's, my dad worked for the telephone company for many years. Uh A friend of my father's said that his daughter was majoring in journalism at Clarion University. So we went up there for a visit, and it was a school that was... You know, not as big. I mean, you could walk from one end of campus to the other, and the class sizes were reasonable. And I decided that this would be a good place for me to go ahead and go to school. Okay. Well, what I had had not counted on as a transfer student was that all transfer students had to go into the freshman dorm, at least for their very first semester. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't have pictured that either. And uh, I was kind of a withdrawn, keep-to-myself type person. I was not a party animal. 
Well, the first day I got there, my folks are helping me unload my stuff and get into the dorm room. And there was a winter storm warning. Clarion, of course, is up there in the snow belt. Yes. And it snowed for three days. It just kept coming and coming off Lake Erie. I remember sitting in the dining hall down on the first floor of the dorm, and I'm watching students walk off into the distance, and after about 100 feet or so, they disappeared because <laughs> it just snowed and snowed and snowed. But that was how I ended up there, and one day I noticed in the school newspaper there was a little ad that said, uh, DJs wanted for college radio station. Mm-hmm apply and I went down and I talked to him and I said, yeah, we think we got something we can do here for you. We're going to put you on a Sunday afternoon, big band show. And I even had a uh, case where I got a letter once from uh, some guy who was passing through on the interstate up there, but he told me he had heard that I was presenting Benny Goodman in concert from Carnegie hall and then recorded back in the fifties. And he wrote me a note, and he said, I was so impressed by the music. He said, I pulled to the side of the interstate, and I sat there until your show was over. And there was another one of those oh-wow moments. It was right. like, I love doing this. And if I can do these kind of things that get people to listen, that make them happy, then, hey, why shouldn't I be doing something like this? Right. And unfortunately, in this day and age, young kids will never have that opportunity because it's such a competitive industry now. And you'll be lucky if you can find a small station to get on, let alone a college station, because there's really no market for it right now because of voice tracking and because of corporate buyouts and everything else. Everything's so automated anymore. Yeah. And it's just so sad. And I, and and when I came when I came to California, I mean we, I'm from Butler County originally. We knew of three radio stations in Butler County: WBUT, WLER, and WISR. Well, they were in Butler. I lived outside mm-hmm. of Butler. We didn't go to Butler very often. If we did anything, we were in Pittsburgh. So let's talk about the Pittsburgh stations. When I came to Fayette County, there were so many radio stations that you could throw a stone at them. From PQR to CBI to MBS, look at WANB in Waynesburg, look at WASP in, in Brownsville. I mean, you had a place that you could go and work. Now, if you talk to Simon Ryder, WMBS was not a radio station you started at. It was a station that you finished at. Mm-hmm. And I believe him now because Timothy Schweer finally retired after I don't know how many years. Wow. <laughs> But Jim Morgan's still going on, and he's working. He's doing mornings now. He's doing. He's 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 considered quote unquote part time. But honestly, I don't think Jim will ever leave the place. Yeah. But um, the last time I talked to him was about a year and a half ago when I was actually co-hosting a cooking show on WMBS um, that we were doing on Saturday mornings, and Jim actually engineered it for us, which was kind of interesting because I didn't see him for a long time. And then I come back to the station. I was there for two years. But you don't have that opportunity anymore. In the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, oh, I forgot to mention um, WESA, AM, and FM in Charleroi. Right. But 
you you didn't you had that opportunity that you could go anywhere you could work commercially you weren't making a lot of money but you were making at least minimum wage so at mm-hmm. least you were building experience and you could build a resume and everything else well in the late 90s 99 2000 2001 we had um, this whole buyout regime come in when key market communications came in and bought WASP WASP FM WESA WESA FM and they started buying these stations up. Well, what they ended up doing is they were closing down the nonprofit, one, the, the not-profit ones, and they were keeping the FMs on, and they were buying up their competition because they wanted to compete, not in Fayette, not in Washington, not in Westmoreland. They were more worried about competing in Pittsburgh. And when mm-hmm. they did that, they eliminated all these local hometown radio stations. Right. And it's just a sin right now because for a long time, these communities' identity was that radio station. Exactly. And it worries me. I mean, even when I'm traveling to different areas of the country, and I've told my children, I've told people I know, that if you hear someone on a broadcast station say something to the effect of, well, it's 27 minutes after the hour, yeah, I will tell you that that is a satellite broadcast. Mm-hmm some sort of syndicated program because that's the way it has to be done, especially if they're going over different time zones. Right. But we had that opportunity. And what was so incredibly unique about WMBS being down there at 590 on the AM dial was there. The nearest station, I think in terms of frequency was 620 WHJB in Greensburg. In Greensburg. Yeah. So there was this large open area that you could be down on the wharf in Pittsburgh and you could tune in WMBS as clear as a bell. That's, that's exactly right. And that was something totally unheard of. And WMBS, in, in, and I don't want to say the early days, but in the 80s and 90s, they actually had a listenership outside of Uniontown, outside of Fayette County. Sure. And in the late... In the late 80s, no, in the late, I got back there in 95, or 98, 99, the station was going through troubles because there was a new FM in town. The FM was taking all the advertising and everything else from it because that was a, that was a very, we were going through a small recession here. And what happened was, is that we came in, we changed formats, we went to an oldies, and yes, as much as I hate to say it, we did satellite overnight, all of a sudden now, the blue WMBS becomes the top 25 station in the Pittsburgh market. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It gets almost a two-share. We were all patting ourselves on the back going, did we finally figure out what the formula was to make this work? Unfortunately, the owner didn't like it because he bought the station as a tax write-off. Mm-hmm. And he got rid of all of us. <laughs> we were so excited. I remember... When the book, the Arbitron book would come out and we'd have a 1.0 share or a 1.1 or a 1.2, and it was like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah, it's exactly right. And we'd uh, be able to take advantage of those ratings because we knew that, first of all, it was incredibly unique for a small AM radio station to be listened to by so many different people. That's right. And, and, was, and you found a niche 
when you were able to do that. Exactly. One of the most listened to people I ever knew was, you mentioned working with him on Saturday nights, was Leon Sykes. Leon, oh, yeah. And his Oldies with Goodies show. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot at Leon's knee when it came to the music of the 50s and the 60s. I helped produce that show. We were 8.30 to, I believe it was like 8.30 to midnight on right. Saturday night. And when Leon had to have a kidney transplant, I had the opportunity to fill in for him for a few weeks. And we, now he just, he taught me so incredibly, such an incredible amount of history. He told me stories about one of the very well-known names there in the Pittsburgh area, a fellow by the name of Porky Chedwick. Uh-huh. And, and that he and Porky Chedwick were good friends. And one thing that just sticks with me, forever and ever, is what a kind, knowledgeable man Leon Sykes was. Oh, definitely. And and I had the opportunity to actually work. I produced Leon's show, too, and I also had the opportunity to fill in on several occasions. And when Leon passed away, I was actually working at WASP. And mm-hmm. I was there, and about five years later, there was an oldies concert at the State Theater in Uniontown. This was after it was it was um, the consortium got a hold of it from Clyde Toole. They remodeled it and everything else. Well, Porky Chedwick was at the oldies concert, and I'd never met the man before. I knew who he was and everything else. My dad was a big fan. My dad talked about going and listening to him. I went up to him and I introduced myself, and I said, "Mr. Chedwick." I had the opportunity to work with a colleague of yours for many years, and we started talking. And he said, who did you work with? And I said, I worked with Leon Sykes. Oh, my goodness, it was like I turned on the light bulb. Porky mm-hmm. couldn't stop talking about Leon yeah. because Leon was somewhat of an oddity himself because he was a black oldies disc jockey in southwestern Pennsylvania. Yeah. And he was accepted by everybody in the in the 50s and the 60s when he would do his dances. Mm-hmm. And they and we tried to recreate that magic um at the, at the uh, Fayette County Fairgrounds with um a, a gentleman by the name of Larry Travisari and we brought him out and we built it as basically trying to rekindle that that magic that Leon had. And the people that would come in, they weren't worried about dancing. They were worried about reminiscing about Leon and his saw cops. And it was amazing how many people Leon touched that he may have never met any of them, but they all knew who he was. Absolutely. And the the one thing that Leon did that I got to admit just surprised the daylights out of me was he kept all his 45s in the toolbox. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. He till 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 last day he kept those, and they were in some of the worst shape that you've <laughs> ever heard. The Q burns were just awful. Um, so when you when you were there, did did they have the 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 program with Dorothy Boone and your Bible speaks? Absolutely. Okay. Dorothy finally retired from that program about three years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was yeah. like, it, it, it's interesting because a lot of these people, if they're not on now, they still have connection to the station. 
in Absolutely. some way and form. The unfortunate thing, and that's why I'm trying to do what I'm doing here is, is that the new generation of people that are working there or working in the field in this area, they don't know the history of the station, and they don't understand how important the station was to the area, to the community, and to the, the, the actual makeup of radio in this region, because mm-hmm. WMBS at one time was a powerhouse. It really was. But when you look at it today, it just looks like a small local radio station. One name we hadn't mentioned, uh, when I first came on there, they looked at me and they said, you remind us of a young Dave Dragason. Oh, yes. And I wasn't sure about that comparison. I had listened to Dave a little bit as I was growing up, but uh, I eventually wore that as a badge of honor because he was so well-known in the area. Dave, Dave was, was a living legend um, yeah. with what Dave did there, which to me was amazing. And, and where he ended up going after that and what he ended up doing. So, again, a lot of people walked through those doors and a lot of people went far places. And, and when you talk, you, you mentioned Charlie Underwood, um, Bob Fultz is another one. They didn't yeah. just work here. They worked throughout the country doing their craft, and then they came back to Uniontown again. Jim Morgan's another example of that. Exactly. So, but again, it's just really interesting to see where they've come and where, they, where they've gone and where they've come back. Unfortunately, the state of radio right now in this area is a lot of, bought or paid for airtime. Right. So they're trying to do whatever they can to keep the station up and running. And that's not just WMBS, that's everybody. And it's all mm-hmm. brokered time. And you 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 still have your your one or two announcers, but you don't have the same feeling that you had not only ten years ago, but twenty years ago and thirty years ago. And unfortunately a newer generation is not going to get that. Well, everybody keeps saying, well, the Internet offers it, the Internet offers it. I'm like, no, no, no. It was a totally different feeling. It was something that you trusted, something you grew up with, something that you called a friend. If you had nothing to do on a Saturday night or there was nothing at all, you turned the radio on, you listened to Leon. Or you couldn't go to sleep at night, you listened to Ray. Or whatever it may be. Or you got up in the morning and you listened to Tim Schweer to give you school closings. You don't have that anymore. And that's what's really sad about the state of things is that we don't have it anymore. Now, is it ever going to get better than that? Is it ever going to go back to that? Probably not. But it would be nice to be able to rekindle that type of the community, the camaraderie, the, the compassion that the station had. Not only for the listeners, but the listeners had for the station. When I was little, one of the things I would do is, of course, it wasn't a case of where you got to see all the sporting events on TV all the time. Yeah. I would sit with my father on the back porch, and we would listen to Bob Prince calling Pittsburgh Pirate Baseball over WMBS Radio. Yeah. And um, Bob Prince, of course, uh, just a mega icon name there in western Pennsylvania. Oh, Definitely. So very well known, and I, I loved his style. I found out, I did some reading about him, found out that he was a protege of, I believe it was Rosie Rosewald. Yeah. And Bob had just such an 
inimitable style that he made you feel like you were at the game, even though you were sitting there just listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It, it, was, it was totally different. And I honestly believe that, and, 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 I, and I mean, I know they went through a 21-year losing streak, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. But the city was not interested. Even if they would have won, I don't think they would have been because the announcers were not as connected, not only to the team, but also to the city. And like you said, Bob, just everybody was stuck on every word that he had to say, and they would just sit and listen, and he made it sound like you were actually at the ballpark, even though you're sitting on your back porch. First time he said the words home run in an elevator, I had to sit and think for a while what that actually meant. (laughs) All right, say we need a Hoover job, 643, right now. Yeah. So again, it, it 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 it's a it's a period of time that unfortunately, yes, you can probably find the the sound bites or that on the internet, but you'll never be able to experience what it was like when it was originally live. That's for sure. So, and it and it, it is it is really a shame. But again, I guess that's what happens when 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 times change, technology advances, and everything else that we keep moving forward. But it's also kind of nice to go back and try to remember what it was like and be able to talk about it and try to give that experience to other people. Now, the one thing, and I've, I've, if I could ever do a master thesis on this, I would love to, or a doctoral thesis on this, in the field of communication, is when a high schooler, teenager, early 20-something, starts to listen to the radio to get their main source of information. Because yeah. there's always that transition, but I've never been able to put my thumb on what causes that transition. Because everybody does it. It's just when does it happen? That's for sure. Of course, when satellite radio came into being a number of years ago, it changed the landscape quite a bit. Oh, yeah. When you had prescription uh, services that or subscription, I should say, not prescription, subscription services that you could sign on to Sirius or XM Radio and you could pay that set fee and have your favorite kind of music played round the clock and you didn't have to worry about listening to any commercials. That's right. But I think even the commercials themselves provided such a local connection for people in the community. One of my favorites that I did during my time at WMBS was I did a commercial for Rich's Highland Farm, which I understand is still going strong many, many years down the road here. And I had the commercial copy and I thought to myself, okay, what can I do to this that will make it sound unique, that it'll make it be something that people will remember. And uh, we did that thing we called reverb. We could put the (laughs) echo in. And I thought, well, we need something to finish this off. And this was about the time that Michael Jackson's Thriller was becoming popular. Yes. So I decided I would borrow a little bit from Michael Jackson and Vincent Price. And at the very end of the commercial, I did the Vincent Price laugh at the end of Thriller. And I had it echoing. And then I finished it off with the sound effect that I found, surprisingly enough, on the CD there in the studio, I found the sound effect of a coffin closing. Okay. And getting that to snap shut like that at the very end of the commercial 
it's got a lot of people's attention. And it was a piece of work I wish I had saved for something to listen to now in my, I don't want to say older age, my more seasoned age. <laughs> there, there's a lot of things that I wish I would have kept, and there were a lot of jingles that I, I still can sing that I had to put on tape or put on cart for somebody. Right. And I, I don't know when I realized that I had to start recording what I did. But I have probably, actually, it probably was when I went to WASP, and I actually recorded pretty much every show I did, every commercial I cut, and everything else. And I realized at the time that I had to do it so I could prove to my kids when I had them that Dad worked in radio. Right. And I have, I have Rubbermaid tubs in my basement of cassette tapes, of CDs, and of video cassettes of what I've done. The bad thing is I've never gone back through them again to see what I have (laughs) because I just don't have the time. But some of the stuff I've been able to convert and I've been able to make to to digital it and put it online not only for me to share with my family but other people that might be interested in it. So, I mean, one of the biggest interviews I ever did, and it was totally by fluke. The book came out. It was one. It was actually the last book you wrote. And I'm going through a journal or whatever it was, and they said, hey, people to interview. And I went to my, my uh, GM, which was Jim Humes at Wasp. I said, Jim, I want to make this phone call. Will you let me interview him? He goes, well, we usually don't pick up the, 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 the tab for the phone call because usually they call into us. But go ahead. We have a Watts line. You can do it. I don't even know if there is such thing as a Watts line in 2016, come to think of it. And it was Steve Allen. Oh, wow. And it was and it was like I knew of him. I didn't know him in The Tonight Show because I wasn't old enough. But I knew his TV work. I knew him in the movie Goodfellas and everything else. And it was amazing. And I'm on the phone with him for an hour. Lucky for me, I recorded it. I have a copy of it. It's online and everything else because that's one of those interviews that if I would have told someone I did it, especially if they knew who he was, they wouldn't have believed me. Well, you mentioned that, and one thing that comes to my mind, of course, I worked with Ray Heist for a number of years. Yeah. And Ray had the opportunity once. I can't remember exactly what year it was, but Mike Farrell of MASH fame yes. was the chairman for UNICEF at the time. Uh-huh. And Ray had the opportunity to interview Mike Farrell there on WMPS. I don't know if it's somewhere in the archives anywhere there. Who knows? The bad thing is, is I don't think there are archives, to be honest with you. No. Yeah. Um, There is stuff that I did that if I wouldn't have made copies of it, it would have been gone. There was a program that I did. um, It was after you left. And this would have been... um, this would have, I was trying to recreate what you did is what it was. Mm-hmm. And I, Dave Bridges was, uh, was news director at the time. Jim was program director. And I said, do any of you remember what Joe Simon did? He did something at Christmas. This is what he did. I'd love to do the same thing, but with a different twist. And what I ended up doing is my three nieces, actually four nieces, one is now the, in charge of the Pittsburgh uh, Poison Control Center in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. The other one's a school teacher. The other one's graduating from Pitt in a month. And another one is becoming a nurse. 
these kids were under the age of eight and they did the program with me and I did it from a child's perspective. There is not a copy of it anywhere. When I went back into, which is funny, when I went back into WMBS two years ago, I made a comment. If you look on the wall where they kept the cassettes in the new studio, in the new building, they have the cassette case. They don't have the cassette. And I'm going, oh, I was so close because I didn't think of keeping it because I thought I would be there forever. Little did I know that I was only there for a year and a half after that. But again, it's just one of those things. People don't realize how important history is until it's either gone or it's too late. I did say one thing. I have a cassette of the first hour of my Christmas program. Oh, cool. And that is, that is one thing I did hang on to. And we had done programs. We did programs for Valentine's Day, for Fourth of July. I went up to uh, Fort Necessity. I went over to Friendship Hill. And uh, we produced a program dealing with uh, the rich history, the historical sites that are all over western Pennsylvania. Which Which is so cool, which now I am working with the Fayette County Historical Association. And we're actually doing them for local cable TV, but I'm taking the audio from them and playing them back again on this program. And I'm interviewing people that have a historical connection or have done research or is talking about certain events that have happened in the area. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, a gentleman just wrote a book um, dealing with the the Nut-Duke trial and Lizzie Nutt's, one of the most famous cases ever to come out of Uniontown in the late 1800s which would have been considered the O.J. Simpson trial of that time. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman that wrote the book, I had the opportunity to sit down, read the book and everything else. It was just fascinating. And we're trying to do that again because not only to, to, to inform people, but to give them an understanding of what local history is and how rich this area is. Because most people, as much as I hate to say it, don't realize what happened here. That's right. And it's and it is it is really it is really sad. But I'm going to do it one program at a time, and hopefully I can get people to to, to realize how special this is. Because you mentioned falling water earlier. There's a lot of people that live in this county that have never been to falling water, and they have the opportunity once a year because there's a citizen a Fayette County Day where you can go and tour the house for free. Mm-hmm but not many people take advantage of it, which is really sad. Well, I really, I want to commend you for these programs that you're doing. Oh, I'm trying. It's wonderful that you're bringing back the history and giving people an idea of what has went on in Fayette County and how it affects what's going on today. Well, what I wish I wish I could do, and when the whole idea of this started, um, it actually originally started, we wanted to do it for TV, and unfortunately, everybody that I talked to said, yeah, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Well, when it was con- time to actually um, schedule the interviews, they realized they were going to be on TV and they didn't want to do it. Mm. So I went to them and I said, how about we do this? Instead of doing it on TV, let's do an audio version of it. We can do it whenever you want to. You call in, I call in, and we'll talk. They said, hey, I like that idea better. So this is the next best thing. So hopefully we'll be able to do something with it. And the historical society is going to be using them um, 
hopefully, hopefully for a exhibit that they're going to be doing here in the near future. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and hopefully that um, actually takes off. But Joe, I appreciate it. I think we finally made it through a program without any technical difficulties. I probably shouldn't have said that right now until I ended it. But, but thank you very much. And I know we could probably go on for another hour, possibly two. And maybe sometime, maybe this summer, we'll sit down and do it again. But I really enjoyed talking to you. And it was great bringing back old memories of, of the time when we worked together and people's names that I haven't thought of in a long time. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule and uh, and uh, putting up with everything that we've had to go through to finally get this program done. Bill, thank you so much for the opportunity, and uh, keep up the good work. It's great to know that uh, I was instrumental in uh, helping someone along in their career. Of course, I guess you're teaching, I'm teaching, and I believe at some point in time I heard Chuck Durso's actually teaching. Chuck is Chuck is teaching too. Chuck is teaching at Union in the Uniontown School District. And Wonderful. what's unique about Chuck is Chuck's oldest son, CJ, is also teaching, and he is my son's band director, um, which is really interesting because Wonderful. Chuck never realized the connection I had with his dad until recently, which was kind of interesting because Chuck and I worked together, and I was Chuck's replacement and Chuck's boss for a brief period of time and everything else. So it, it is. It's, it's interesting how all of us, our paths cross in many different ways. Well, maybe I get back in the neighborhood and we can get the three of us together and go out for dinner. That that, that sounds wonderful. I'll, I'll, I'll remind you when I see you. All right. Bill, thank you again. I do appreciate the opportunity. Joe, thank you very much, and I really appreciate you taking time. We'll talk again real soon. Best to you and your listeners. Thank you very much. Joe Simon, formerly of WMBS Radio, a wonderful time with him. Hopefully you got as much enjoyment out of it as I did. Really enjoyed it, and uh, we'll be back in next week. As of right now, no guests are scheduled, but uh, we'll be doing the show next uh, Friday night at 11 o'clock, and uh, we'll be doing it all over again. So if you'd like the show, tell a friend. Um, remember the phone number for the program. You're more than welcome to call in at 724-444-7444-1832 is the TalkCast ID number. Enjoy doing this and uh, gives me some time to reminisce with some great people that I've had the opportunity, if not to work with, I've had the opportunity to talk to. So everybody, you have a great week, great weekend, great week. I am out of here and we'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. You've just gone online Online. with Bill Alexander. For more information and to download this program as a podcast, go to OnlineWithBillAlexander.com. Online with Bill Alexander is a million-dollar baby production in association with TalkShoe.com. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend.
Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. People turn to the Weather Channel app for their weather forecasts every day. But what if the app could forecast more? Like allergy risk trackers and real-time rain alerts. So you know when to stay inside, load up on tissues and podcasts. And 24-hour future radar. So you can plan to get outside, load up on sunscreen and podcasts. Do more of what you love. Don't just check the weather. Embrace it with the Weather Channel. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.